This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Okay, so we do wear masks, by the way, the prayer meeting, in case that uh, is helpful to some of you to know that. Probably the coldest uh, night so far for worship, so um, cheers to you all for coming, <laughs> and cheers to me, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm really proud of our church. I really am. Austin and I, in the uh, session, talk about it a lot, just um, how resilient we've been for this many people to come here. It's wonderful. Um, We're in the book of Luke. Jesus is marching to Jerusalem, and he's moving to a new territory here, uh, probably Perea, which is a little bit outside of Judea. And great crowds are accompanying him, verse 25, because he's in a new territory. Just much bigger crowds than this are are following him, and he'll he'll stop and teach them. And uh, on this occasion... Rather than trying to build up his following, as you might expect from a religious leader, why not have as many people as possible coming? Uh, Jesus actually turns around and says in verse 25, uh, one of the most stringent, um, one of the most harsh and difficult pronouncements that he ever made. Um, He says, anyone who does not renounce everything cannot be my disciple. That's in verse 33. Anyone who doesn't renounce everything cannot be my disciple. So that's what he says when he has all these people coming around him. Can you imagine a politician at a rally saying something like that um, to his or her adoring fan base? Uh, They'd never say that. Uh, When they try to make Jesus king, he slipped away because he didn't want the fanfare. He didn't want the huge crowds. As one commentator said it, uh, he would ha- he would rather have a few salty disciples than a ton of bland followers. And so he wants uh, resilience. Uh, he wants this. Um, verse 34 says, if salt has lost its taste, it is useless. It doesn't have the same function that it normally has um, of preserving things, of making things spicy. And so... Um, what we're going to look at here is how uh, this um, centrality of Christ and discipleship is what makes us salty. That makes us different. That's what makes us stand out and flavor the world and preserve the world, which salt does. So um, I want to look at the centrality of Christ, the all-consuming nature of discipleship, that we have to renounce ourselves in order to be his disciples. That's the first thing. And then the second thing that we've got to talk about is that that is truly costly and that you should know the cost of discipleship. As uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he says, when, a, when Christ calls a person to come to himself, he calls that person to come and to die. 
And so before you really get into Christianity, you should know that that is, um, that is where you're heading. That's where the road is leading, to the death of the old self for the sake of the birth of a new self. So the, there is a great end to this, but to get to that end, you have to go through your old self dying. So the centrality of Christ and then the cost of discipleship. So he's just told a parable about a wedding. If you look at the verses right before the ones that Sarah read, he's just told a parable about a wedding and this king throws a great banquet uh, and invites all these people to come and they all make excuses why they don't want to come. Um, one of them is basically like, um, I'm closing on a house that day. Uh, another one says kind of like, I'm renovating my, you know, my, my bathroom that day and I've got to talk to the contractor. Another one said, I've got, to, I've got to work on my marriage. They're all really good excuses for why they can't come. Um, but the point is that it is the best things in our lives that are the things that prevents us from making Christ absolutely central. Uh, number one in our lives. It's, it's the best thing, not the worst thing. The best things in our lives are the greatest threat to absolute dedicated discipleship. Um, verse 26, you must hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters to be mine. I mean, what a statement that is. That, uh, not that you have to be uh, hateful towards them or harsh or, you know, reject them or shun them or repudiate them, but it, but it is a comparative there. So when he says hate them, he's saying you've got to love me more. It was a common... Uh, a Jewish expression of the day to use hate in that comparative way. So what he's saying is, I have got to be more important to you than even your closest family and friends. And uh, the reason he picks the family is because the family, um, especially back then, was so central to their lives. And I think even today that would, that would be true. In general, that the family are the, the things the, that is the most precious to it. That at the end of, at the end of your life, when you're dying, uh, on a hospital bed somewhere, the, the ones you want next to you are going to be probably your family. And so what he's saying is that the, the very most important part of your life, the, these relationships, that is got to be less than me, quite a bit less than me, which is an astounding claim that he's making there. Um, think about the greatest threat in your life to following Jesus completely, to giving everything to him. Um, what is the greatest obstacle to making him most central to your life? And so I'm talking about practical things uh, like, you know, praying, reading the Bible, being with other Christians, coming to worship. These are, so it's not just this kind of, you know, thing up in the air, some theoretical thing. It's, it's like actually what you spend your time doing, uh, you know, helping the poor or evangelizing. All these different things we could be doing with our time that are good. Um, but mostly it's just communion with him. What is, the, what is the greatest obstacle in your life to entering that fellowship and intimacy and communion with Christ? And I'll tell you what it's not. It's probably not drugs, alcohol, or porn. You know, these obvious sins. It's not, it's not those things. Uh, and the parable, it was, uh, it was a marriage. And it was oxen. Um, it was a field. These are good things. It's going to be something good. It's going to be your spouse. It's going to be your child. It's going to be your sibling or your parent or a partner you have, but it's going to be a really good thing that keeps you from making Jesus the most central thing in your life. A way to think about this is 
what would it be in your life if God were to take that thing from you that would most likely cause you to reject him, to turn away from him? I've seen that happen in people's lives. When they lost that thing, they turned away from God. It happens all the time. So it's worth asking yourself right now, what is that thing that is most likely to tempt you to stop praying or to just give up hope if God were to take that thing from you? And then if somebody were to ask you when that was taken from you, if if they were to say to you, but isn't God enough for you? Isn't Christ enough for you? Um, How would you react to that if somebody said that? And here's the point. The point is that that Christian ethics, Christian morality is completely unique uh, and completely all-consuming. It's not like, you know, you listen to this great teacher, uh, you, you listen to the spiritual guru, and you try to put into practice what they tell you. That's the way that other ethics run. That's not the way that Christian ethics run. The way that Christian ethics operates is you walk through every second of your life in closest loving union with God Almighty, with Jesus Christ who became a human being so that we could have this intimate communion with God. So to see how radical this is, there's a statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, where he says to somebody uh, who was sleeping with a, a prostitute, he says, should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Now you can enlarge that idea to say, um, You know, the reason you don't have sex outside of marriage, Jesus says, is because that's bringing me into that relationship, into that moment, into that act. You are bringing me into that. Let me read that again. Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, your body is intimately tied to Christ, and then join that to a prostitute. In in doing so, you're bringing Christ into that. So when you are, you know, writing that angry text to someone, you're doing that in Christ inseparable from Christ. That's why it's so all-consuming, because you never do anything apart from him. When you're looking at porn, you are doing that with Christ. You're bringing him into that. You can never escape his presence once he's in you. And you wouldn't want to, because you're in him too. Or if you're flirting with a coworker or something like that that's slightly edgy and not quite moral, you're doing that in Christ. And that's the way you should evaluate your behavior. It's utterly consuming. The end goal is not just doing what he says, but it is being one with him. That's why he says in verse 26, everyone who does not hate his own life, his very life, and again, that's comparative. That means if you love your life without me more than you love me, then it's not going to work. You cannot be my disciple. You've got to be ready to give me everything. This is the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. I remember when I first read this as a, as a non-Christian I realized this is a whole new thing. I've never heard anything like this. He says, he's quoting Jesus basically here. He's putting, these are the words of Christ. Lewis writes, give me all. I don't want so much of your time or your money or your work. I want all of you. Give me all your desires, all your wishes, all your fears, and I will give you a new self, myself. So that's the first point. If you're becoming... A disciple of Jesus, or if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, just know that he will slowly become utterly overwhelming to you. That he will become all-engrossing and enthralling and gripping and devouring. And that's what your life will become, one with him. 
So that's where you're going. That's the road. And so that's why we need to talk about the cost of discipleship. Because have you counted the cost and realized that's where it's heading? Because that is the end goal of Christianity, is to have you in more and more intimate union with Christ. So the, the cost. Um, verse 33, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's the cost, utter self-renunciation. Webster defines renounce as to formally declare one's abandonment of something. So, example, he renounced drugs and alcohol completely. So when you become a disciple, you're saying, I renounce uh, Ben Milner completely. The old Ben Milner. I'm giving up on that. I renounce that. I officially declare abandonment of that. And Jesus compares it to crucifying yourself. Verse 27 Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, the, the crowd hearing that uh, uh, of Jewish people would be alarmed by that and kind of terrorized by that because crucifixion was the, the Roman way of um, just creating extreme fear and terror in order to keep the order of Rome, the Pax Romana. That's the way they did it. You would see when you came into a city, a Roman city, you would see on the hillside all these different crucified criminals to say, not only are we going to torture you and kill you, but we're going to leave you there hanging, um, which just completely annihilates your whole personhood, all your dignity. And so if you're wondering, if you're not a Christian and you're wondering what Christianity is like, or you're new or something like that, um, you're, you're kind of wasting your time if you are not interested in self-renunciation in, in taking up a cross and being willing to be crucified essentially um, to the annihilation of your old person essentially is what's being asked there and so uh, the reason you know he says this is because he's not a salesman he's not trying to uh, draw you in and, and then give you the hard sale at the end um, he's not like that at all he's not trying to sell you anything. He isn't, he's asking you to die. He's inviting you to come to himself and, and to die. It's, it's the opposite of a sales pitch. And if you are a Christian, just remember what, uh, what you signed up for when you became a Christian. And if life's really hard and you feel like uh, you're dying, then, you know, that was, that was the point. That's why you entered into this relationship is so that your old self would be crucified. And that hurts. Um, the, the cost of discipleship is very high. But the, the payoff is even higher. The, the cost is high, but then the, the payoff is much, much higher. Uh, if you notice these two short parables, I'm going to end with this. These two parables are both parables about counting the cost. And in, in the two parables, uh, Christ is appealing to your self-interest, your long-term self-interest. So in verse 28, uh, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? In both of these, the person sits down, which is a posture of really thinking long and hard about it. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So why is this fellow counting the cost? Uh, it's, it's for a good reason to see if he can have a tower out of this. He doesn't want to start building this thing until he can be sure that at the end he gets a tower. And so the, there's an appeal to self-interest. Count the cost 
so that you can make sure that at the end of it you have all this strength of a tower, this strong tower. Um, the, the end goal is something even better than the money you put in for the materials. It's a tower. It's strength. Same thing with the other parable. Verse 31. What king going to encounter someone in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to defeat an army of 20,000? Again, the only reason that this king is counting anything is to see whether he can win this great victory. That's why he's going to the war, to win a victory. So what Jesus is saying is, yes, the cost of discipleship is high. It is your entire old life without me. But the gain, the payoff is much greater, which is an entirely new life in me and me in you. I in them and they in me, that they would be perfectly one. That's what Jesus prayed. That they would have uh, his strength and his victory. That he is the tower, he is the victory. Um, you give up you and you get him. That's, that's the cost and that's the payoff. We don't die to be miserable. Um, this is no, not you know, sadism or self-flagellation or anything like that. Uh, Christianity is, you're dying for victory and strength. Really to crush the, the old self that is inside of you. Um, that, that stuff inside of us that makes us miserable. Um, it's like Harry Potter. I'm, I'm reading Harry Potter right now again. And if you've read those books or seen those movies, um, the, to rid Harry Potter of the evil, which is Voldemort, the arch enemy of Harry Potter, his voice gets inside of Harry Potter's head. And, he, and Harry Potter will feel the feelings of Voldemort and hear the voice and all that horrible stuff that, he's, um, that, that Voldemort has put inside of him. Um, to get that out of him, essentially, Harry Potter has to be, you know, have to have that crucified to be free from those thoughts. And, and J.K. Rowling says um, in a quote from an interview, uh, Voldemort kills the part of Harry that's not truly Harry Potter. The fragment of Voldemort's own soul that is clinging to Harry Potter's soul. So this meal we're about to take is a meal where uh, we're getting that by dying to ourselves. We're getting that voice, that false self out of us. And the false self is crucified even as the, the new self is vivified and resurrected. And if you focus on yourself, then you're going to feel insecure, anxious, jealous, and lonely. You're going to die slowly if you focus on yourself. But if you focus on Christ and Christ inside of you, then you come to life. And you become confident and peaceful and grateful and beloved. And so at this table, the old Ben Milner dies. And the man that I was made to be uh, the man that uh, God knit together in my mother's womb, uh, fearfully and wonderfully made, known from all eternity, that person, the real me, comes to life here. Uh, that, that name that nobody yet knows, written on a white stone, um, that will only be revealed in heaven, in the new creation, that is the real self that is coming to life as the old self dies at this table. And so on the night he was betrayed, uh, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Come and die with me. And then he took the cup and he said,